This is Louisa Wilcox at Grizzly Times, where we speak for the grizzly bear and the wild places it calls home. The grizzly has long captured our imagination as a symbol of wilderness in the American West, but it's still vulnerable and needs our help. Our podcast introduces you to fascinating people, scientists, business people, advocates, artists, and others who share their experience and insights about grizzly bears and their ecosystems. You can also find us at grizzlytimes.org, and we hope you will join us in helping the threatened grizzly flourish in our rapidly changing world. Well, this is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I'm delighted today to be here with Ellen Bass. Ellen is an acclaimed poet who has won many awards, including Pushcart Prizes, the Lambda Literary Award, and the Pablo Neruda Prize, to mention a few. Her latest collection of poems, Indigo, was published by Copper Canyon Press this spring, and it's been called an instant classic. And I can testify that my own copy is pretty dog-eared. Indigo also includes a gorgeous poem entitled Grizzly. Ellen teaches widely, including in the MFA writing program at Pacific University, and she founded poetry workshops at Salinas Valley State Prison and the Santa Cruz, California jails. Uh, Welcome, and and so great to have you. Oh, I'm very happy to be talking with you. Well, Ellen, you contacted us after Sun Magazine published an interview with David and me about our work on behalf of the grizzly bear last winter. And you sent us your poem, Grizzly. Would you mind if we began this conversation with you reading that poem? Oh, yes, I'd be happy to read it. Thank you. Grizzly. She grazes in a meadow, sulfur blossoms spilling from her jaw. At this moment, she seems so calm, she could be holy. If what that means is something like being wholly unaware of the good she gives. How even her rooting tills the soil, and even her shitting ferries the seeds, and even her bathing is a joy to behold, as I am beholding her this morning, as she leans over a water hole, her shadow first, and then her reflection on the skin of the water, then the splash as she enters, the pond opening, rippling, and the scritch as she scrubs her head with her paw, the great planet of her head that she dunks and raises, shaking the water in wide arcs, spraying the lens of the hidden camera. And now she climbs out, water rivering off her fur. She is drying that huge head in the long grasses. And here she hunkers over a bison carcass, slowly ripping free the shoulder, those precision instruments that work with an ease that seems, yes, delicate. Blood stains the river and stains the snowbank and stains the rock, vessel carrying the chemicals of life, air and bone, flagella and bloom. She carries them, lumbering forward as she sinks her teeth and feeds. Thank you. Thank you. Ellen, when we spoke, I asked you about your trip to Yellowstone, assuming that you had been to Yellowstone, because that's the only place left where grizzlies and bison still coexist, as they once did throughout the Northern Hemisphere. 
and you said no. Maybe you can explain the context and perhaps why this bear worked on you. Well, I'd, I'd never been to Yellowstone, although um, I had been trying to get to Yellowstone for the last three or four years. My wife and I kept making plans to go, and then something would foil those plans. So I feel like Yellowstone has been on my mind, and I've been yearning toward it for a few years before uh, I encountered uh, a newsletter, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm not sure uh, what it was now. I think it was actually a call about uh, you know, it was something that came into my inbox, and I think it was asking for me to sign something uh, about protecting the bears right outside of Yellowstone. And you get so many things in your inbox that are really important and about so many species and so many aspects of our living world that are endangered. And a lot of them I don't attend to because there's so many. But once in a while, something just grabs me, and I guess it was in a way just a kind of uh, serendipity that this just grabbed me. And I started reading about it, and then I started reading more about it, you know, just that way in which you can kind of go from one thing to another online so easily and actually bump into a lot of very um, important information from people who know a lot about what's going on. So I got more and more into it, and then I bumped into these videos of this one bear uh, who I started watching this bear bathing, and I was just mesmerized. I was just entranced, and the sound was pretty good on this video, and so I could not only see the bear, I could hear. I could hear the water splashing when the bear came out of the water. I could hear um, that sound of her rubbing her, I call her her, I don't really know, rubbing <laughs> her on the grasses, and I just couldn't stop watching this over and over, and then also watching this bear eating the bison. And the, as I try and describe in the poem, this extreme delicacy. I mean, she was, her claws are so long, and they just seemed like, oh, like somebody handling 10 chopsticks really carefully <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and uh, precisely. Um, she wasn't just sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, just destroying this bison, even though she was pulling it apart, but she was doing it with, with no more force than was needed. And because her claws are so strong and so sharp, not a lot of force was needed. So it was very delicate 
maneuver as she was, um, you know, I just could picture myself so easily. I don't know what I could compare it to, like maybe, maybe, maybe eating um, hard shell crab or something like that, where you just, you know, have a lot of maneuvering to do to to eat the thing. And I was I was just amazed at watching it, and I I wanted just to try and capture it in language, and I didn't really. I, I didn't really have, um, you know, a, a message. I wasn't, uh, I just wanted to capture it, and I wanted to honor this bear. I wanted to admire the bear and just, you know, take this photograph, a kind of living photograph in words, so that I could... Um, I could have that relationship with with what I had seen with that image, and then you know hopefully the other people would see that image, and um, you know I, I I don't really I can't write something expecting it to do some heavy lifting in the world. You know that's not what a a poem is to me. It's not a position paper, uh, although those are extremely important. You know, it's it's not a a call to arms in some way, although that's very very important. But um, that's a poem for me is just um, a place to explore something, to enter into it more deeply, pay attention to it, and. It was, it was a, as I say, you know, it was just a joy to watch this bear. You could feel that the bear liked going into that pond, that it felt good. And it was a joy to write the poem and try to find language to communicate that. Yeah, to me, uh, one thing I appreciate about this poem is um, the, the importance of slow, that, that you just looked, that, that this was a poem about seeing a bear and and seeing it from several, at several different levels. And I think as someone who has been an advocate for grizzlies for a long time, you can get into a bit of automatic pilot of, well, the heavy lifting here is, you know, we have to stop trophy hunting or whatever. And I think the heavy lifting in many ways, if bears or animals of any kind are to have a future, the heavy lifting is just to slow down and see. And that's what you helped me do with this poem. Which is... Thank you. Yes, yes. Um... That slowing down is, is I think, at the heart of why I want to write any poem. I, I'm not really a slow-down person in a lot of ways. Um, mm. and, you know, my motor runs pretty fast, and so I really need poetry because that's a place where it doesn't happen fast for me. I really have to 
I have to slow down and I want to slow down. And like I tell my students, you know, poetry is not efficient. You know, you, you can't <laughs> find the most efficient way to write a poem. So to be able to slow down and be with this bear, even just in my little laptop screen, you know, just to be able to watch this bear over and over and take my time uh, to try and make language that uh, conveys a little bit of what I saw with this bear was was wonderful slowing down. And of course, you, you know, I know we need to slow down and it's not like me telling other people you should slow down. You know, I'm always telling myself you should slow down. <laughs> Many of your poems are about illness, death, dying, sadness, loss. How does poetry help you cope with grief and loss? I think um, I, I feel very fortunate to have poetry. Uh, I think that we all need some way to cope with loss and death and grief, and I think art is one way. I think everyone must have their their own way, but I find being able to make a poem, it's interesting that, that you're asking that question right after we talk about slowing down. Because I think they're related for me that in, in making a poem, I have to slow down, and it's a, it's a space, almost like a physical space, in which to be with the feelings. And it's, it's a way to be with them, but not just wash around aimlessly in them uh, or kind of perseverate and go over the same aspects of them over and over or just be overwhelmed by them. It's, um, it's, it's a way that I'm close to the feelings but not too close and I have to be deeply in the feelings, but also I have to be a little bit removed from the feelings. So it's it's almost like the ideal uh, closeness or distance. It's it's the kind of holding 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 the feelings at the ideal distance closeness. Um, to be able to be with them but not be overwhelmed by them. And then to be able to investigate them and be curious about them. I, like most people, you know, don't want to have 
negative feelings, you know, hard feelings. I mean, you know, most of us would just rather be happy. Um, but that's not always an option. Um, and so when there are these difficult feelings of, of grief and loss and fear, um, which I think is one of the hardest emotions of all, then how do I be with these feelings? So, you know, one, you know, one way is to just try and get away from them. But, you know, that is not, that's not very workable if, if you want to be fully or, or at least somewhat fully rooted in your life. You can't just run away from them and still be present. You know, then you're running away from your whole life. So being able to be curious about the feelings and look at them and investigate them and try and understand the nature of them, uh, try and explore them, that's what happens in the making of a poem and you know in that process trying to be curious about my life and the lives of those around me and these relationships both with people and with animals and with um, plants even sometimes and things things of the world. Um, that's what I, I get to do in, in making a poem. And also, uh, especially with, with death, when, when someone has died, writing about them is a way to, for me to bring them back. So, hmm. for example, I find more and more, my mother died about 10 years ago, and I find more and more that I just want to find ways to write about her because it brings me so close to her when I can do that. And I always have a little bit of real... Mm, kind of wrenching a, a little a little just uh, kind of shiver of, of wrenching grief if, if, I, if I write a poem about my mother that I can't show it to her but the bigger feeling is that I get to uh, remember her so vividly when I'm able to write about her yeah. Well, many of your poems are filled with humor, uh, you know, such as delighting in Greece as you cook pork chops or your envy of seeing a man with gorgeous indigo tattoos jogging down the street with his infant in a stroller. Uh, maybe you can share a bit about where your inspirations come from. I think they're pretty eclectic and... It's interesting because sometimes uh, there are 
people and experiences that are really important to me and central to my life, and I've never been able to write about them successfully. And other times, there's something that seems so peripheral and kind of random, and yet somehow I have an entrance there uh, into writing a poem. So, I mean, some things are obvious, you know, like, of course, my mother would be important to me. But many times the inspiration does seem like it's um, so accidental, and yet there it is. So it's a bit of a mystery to me what turns out to be the inspiration of a poem and what doesn't to a certain extent. For example, I, my best friend um, is somebody who has been my best friend for over 50 years, and mm. I love her so deeply, and I think she's such an interesting person, and the way we met is so interesting, and I have so much to say, you know, that I could write an essay about, about her and our relationship and, and what it meant to me, and she's an artist, a visual artist, and I have never been able to write a successful poem about her. And I've tried, oh, so many times. And why is that? I have no idea, none at all. And yet, you know, somebody else, I mean, I have a poem from, from way back about a man that I sat next to on a plane and we both went to sleep and um, <laughs> had a cold. And, um, but I was still glad to be next to him because he was very large and the plane was very cold, and so I was getting a little warmth from him. So, I mean, it's like this is somebody I've never even spoken to, and yet he wound up being the inspiration for a poem, and I can't get one single poem about this woman who I am so deeply attached to. So the inspirations are are not within my control, um, but I am always on the lookout for them. I always, you know, have my uh, antenna out for them, and I'm always hoping for them, but what catches and what doesn't is a little bit mysterious, or a lot mysterious to me. (laughs) Some things seem more obvious. You know, like a lot of the poems in my most recent book, Indigo, uh, are my grappling with um, a time in my life where my wife was going through a serious illness, and these poems are my grappling with my experience of that, not with, with her experience, but with my own. And... So that seems more obvious, like, of course, that would be something that that I would want to write about because it was so prominent in my life then. But much of it is mysterious. 
<laughs> For many of us who see what's happening to this planet, um, you know, ice sheets collapsing in the Arctic or, or protests more recently over police brutality, it's easier than ever to get, just get consumed by anger and condemnation. And the speed of mainstream and social media seems to encourage us to have quick judgments about so many things. How does writing poetry affect your instincts to judge or perhaps to look away? I don't think it makes me want to look away. I think I think poetry always makes you want to look at. And so I don't think it makes me want to look away, but it definitely affects that instinct to judge. And I don't mean by that that I'm neutral. I mean, I, I, I'm certainly distressed by so many things that are going on, and I think that so many things that are going on are wrong. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, police brutality against black lives is just abhorrent to me. And so I have that judgment, but I can't make a poem out of that judgment. I have to... I have to, in order to make a poem, I have to enter from, um, I have to find some way in. And the same thing about um, the climate crisis. I can't just say this is a disastrous thing that's happening to our planet. I need some way in in order to um, explore. And I think that's not that there aren't. It, I mean, anything you say about poetry, you, there, there are examples of poems that do the opposite of what you say a poem needs to do and are incredibly successful. So there, there's, no, there's no statement that applies across the board. But, but I think I can talk about m- me. Um, and and the way that I need to enter into a poem, which is from a place of curiosity, from a place of trying to discover something I don't already know. So I feel very confident that I know that police brutality is is a, 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 a just a horrible, horrible terror and. Um, I have a very clear judgment about it. But I can't write a poem from that judgment. I, I have to write a poem to try and explore something that I didn't already know before I began to write the poem. And if we then also, well, let me say this. It's very, very hard. I, I admire so much the poems that are written about these crucial, big topics and events and issues of our day. They're very, very hard for me to write. When I am able to, to manage to write a poem about something that is a, a, a 
large social, public, political concern. I'm so grateful because they're, they're few and far between for me. Um, and if I could, I would write more of them. And it's always my hope that I will. But I'm, I'm at the mercy of what, of, of what I'm permitted to write by the gods of poetry. I, it, it's, it, it, it's like when, uh, you know, I don't believe in a, in a muse, really, but just kind of talking metaphorically, it's like, you know, when the muse offers me something, I just have to say yes to whatever it is. And, and often I have to be overriding a strong feeling or thought which says, oh, this is too trivial. There's so many important things going on. I shouldn't be writing about this very small thing, whatever that might be, this very personal small thing. But I have to just override that and write what I'm given to write or what I'm allowed access into or what I have the skills to write and be grateful for that and um, I, I also know from many years of writing, and I've been writing for over half a century, hmm. I know that I'm, I'm always teaching myself something and that I may be in, in these poems that I feel are less monumental I may be teaching myself something that I will need to write a poem that speaks to these larger issues. So I, I always have to trust, going back to that trusting that, every, that nothing is wasted and that the time that I spend writing a poem that is about something very small or the time that I spend writing a poem that ultimately fails, which most of them do, um, that nothing is wasted and that I never know what it is that I am preparing myself for. And I, I just say something maybe about judging in, in poems that aren't about larger issues. I have to suspend a certain kind of judgment there as well, because again, even if it's just about something in my own personal or domestic sphere, the whole essence of writing a poem for me, to a certain extent, is about paying attention and discovery. So if my judgment is too firm, and rigid, then I really can't discover anything because I'm entering, again, from a position of feeling that I know it all. And if I know it all, then that's not a, 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 an authentic poem. I really loved, uh, I loved your poem, Reincarnation, and, and in it there's a little bit um, that you wrote, uh, quote, the oyster persists in filtering seawater and fashioning the daily irritations into luster. 
do you see yourself as a figurative oyster? Well, that's that's such a wonderful thing to ask. Um, I, I I wasn't thinking of myself, of course, when I wrote that, but that is a, quite a lovely um, a lovely uh, photo. You know, it's like it's like a photograph that caught me in a good light. <laughs> <laughs> I I I um I love that image and um I I don't know that I am capable of doing that all the time but in a way yes um I think that what one does in poetry is to try to take suffering and the daily irritations and turn them into art, to make art out of them. Hmm. Well, Ellen, you've worked a lot with uh, survivors of abuse and trauma. How do you see the relationship between writing and healing? And do you think there are any lessons here for those traumatized by what we're doing to the planet? Well... I, I discovered many things in about writing and healing in that work. One of the things I discovered is that writing for survivors of abuse and trauma turned out to be extremely healing. And I of course, asked myself a lot of questions about why that might be so. And one of the things that I came up with in, in, in asking that, a, a kind of um, theory that I came up with, is that when you are writing, as opposed to talking to someone, you're you're not picking up subtle or not so subtle responses from the person you're talking to. So even if that person is a wonderful listener and a compassionate listener, they're they're still responding in the way that they hold their body and whether they blink or don't blink or little sounds they make or what they might say back to you. So in some way you're in relationship. And although that can be supportive, it it also is another factor. Whereas when you're writing, no one is responding. And so it's just between you and you. And uh, there's a, a way in which I didn't know this, but I, it, it was um, reflected back to me after I had been doing this work for some time that when people write, they do put themselves into a kind of trance, a, a kind of hypnotic trance. And so they go very they have the um, possibility of going very deeply into the experience and to some extent reliving the experience. But this time 
not um, not with of course it's, it, you know it's they're going through it again but they're going through it they're in, they're more in control of it because they are writing it down and as I was talking before they're holding it at uh, a, a different distance mm-hmm. it's it's not necessarily overwhelming them although I should say too that it can be overwhelming and so one of the things that I learned in this process is that it's important for people who are writing about their own trauma to have uh, safety put in place and that can be uh, a, 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 there, there's many ways in which people can put that safety in place for mm-hmm. example making a container for that writing so that they might do something um, before they start and when they finish that mm. that um, makes a safe safer space for it like lighting a candle or having a little bell or something like that. And they can do things like having uh, time that is structured for after the writing where they can do something that is comforting, like have a cup of tea quietly or take a little walk or, you know, something that helps them make the transition back out of that, those depths and, um, you know, is, is soothing. So, you know, we learned a lot in the process of how to make sure that in that, that the writing is not re-traumatizing. Right. Um, but, yes, the writing, the writing turned out to be extremely healing, and um, one of the things that was startling was how quickly people could uh, re-enter the traumatic experience Hmm. um, compared to how quickly they might enter it just talking, for example, to a therapist, which might take a number of weeks before they felt comfortable or secure enough to uh, share, whereas in the writing... They might just um, plunge in, um, you know, in the first hour. Uh, And so, again, we learned to talk about, you know, how to titrate that so that they didn't plunge in too quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's it's definitely, you know, kind of a greased shoot for going deeply. And I, I learned in the work just how, how quick that could be. Um, and it is, um, in, a, in a way, it is deeply, deeply healing. And in a way, it's a little bit maybe too facile to say that it's only healing um, because it's also very demanding and exhausting and so um, when, when somebody who does have severe trauma is working with writing, 
it is important to to do it in a way that it, it, that they can create or someone can help them create some structure around it. Um, but but yes, it's it's an incredible tool. And um, then your question: Are there lessons here for those traumatized by what we are doing to this planet? Is such an uh, important and big question um, that uh, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, how to respond to that. I think that one thing is that writing is the way that we communicate with each other a lot these days. We are a very written culture. Of course, we're also an oral culture more and more with opportunities like this one in in a podcast. But we do write uh, to each other a tremendous amount. And I would never have known about the plight of these grizzlies around Yellowstone had somebody not written about them and and emailed that to me uh, and to many, many other people. So I think that's very important. But I'm thinking about, you know, personal writing for those of us who are traumatized by what we're doing to the planet. And I think the thing that writing does is it, it gives us a space to acknowledge to ourselves what we feel. And I think that that is really essential because a lot of the time we we can't we can't every minute of the day be acknowledging how traumatized I think I would say we all are by what we're doing to this planet. Whether, whether we're really conscious of it or not, we are, I think, all uh, living in a way that um, we feel that trauma. And um, it may be subterranean. So writing is one place. It's not the only place, but it's one place where we can stop and not run away from it, acknowledge it, and maybe explore it. And I think that although that is painful, maybe I shouldn't say although that is painful and then go on in the same sentence to say something else. Maybe that should just really have its own sentence and say that is painful. It is painful to stop and acknowledge how traumatized we are by what we're doing to this planet and how traumatized other creatures are and how, I don't know if you can use the word traumatized to apply to the planet itself, but, but let's do that, how, how traumatized the planet itself is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think that stopping to acknowledge that and to n notice what we feel and uh, explore what we feel, discover what we feel, I think that that is not, it's necessary. I think it's a positive thing. It's a painful thing, and I think it's a necessary thing because I think that the work that we do and the way that we live, the more conscious we are of that, then we will make more of our decisions based on that. It's hard to make decisions on something that you're not conscious of. If, if we don't allow ourselves to be conscious, then we can't act in accordance with what we're conscious of because we're not conscious of it. So I think that, um, I think that writing is not the only avenue. I think there are lots of avenues but I think it is one avenue. And I think that um, this is a place where, you know, thinking about that question earlier about judgment, I think it's a place where it is important and um, be able to say what our opinions and our judgments are. And then I think it's also important to go beyond them and to really investigate our own experience, our own feelings, and to investigate the world. Um, that the, the living world that still is here. Um, I think that our, you know, this is where appreciation and love come in because I think it's, it's probably most useful to be guided not only by our fear and I will say horror at what is being lost. Those are, our fear and our horror are really important, but I don't think those are the only useful guides. I think that our love of what remains and how our appreciation of it and our interaction with it are, are also really important guides. Yeah, Ellen, I really appreciate uh, the approach you're offering here, um, and it makes me reflect on you know my year, many years as um, as an advocate, as a professional advocate, if you will, for for wildlife and wild places. And uh, I, I, in the groups that I have t worked with, and what I've seen um, in the conservation movement, um, there is not really an approach, a skillful approach, for dealing with what a lot of us feel, which is grief over, you know, 
climate change, over extermination of species, over over destruction of, of places that we love. And, and often that grief is transmogrified into anger lashing out against, you know, government officials typically or corporations. And, and that may be deserved, but they're, you know, what you're getting at is, I think, a, a broader approach rooted in, in, in love, really, love of what of this planet, of, of other beings, and, and that's, that's very helpful. And I wish, I guess I wish um, conservation groups engaged in this, in this work would kind of realize, you know, the, in a more sophisticated way, the, the toll that the work itself has on the people. Mm, mm. I can only imagine. Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's hard, to, and especially if you've got this narrative of, oh, I have to be professional, I can't let this show. Um, yes, you can't let it show in a meeting with the Forest Service maybe, but, you know, there, you have to find a way of, of, um, of dealing with the feelings. So, That's know. really intriguing, Louisa. Hmm. You know, I think about, um, like, uh, Joanna Macy's work around nuclear um, issues mm-hmm. and her workshops that she, um, you know, has, has um, run with uh, making room for people to talk about their, their grief and their fear and... Um, I, I, you know, I'm not, it, 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 I'm not a um, anything. I, I'm, I'm not really an activist um, at all in the area of conservation, even though I care a lot, and I'm certainly not a professional activist. Um, and so I don't know a lot about how these um, organizations and circles, you know, operate in what's available. And you're saying that just really intrigues me of how wonderful it would be um, if that could be, um, that could be offered. Mm-hmm. That could be, you know, offered, um, and if people doing this work would want to have something like that, do you think they yeah. want? Mm-hmm. I mean, I worry um, a lot about the younger generation coming up in the world of of climate change and energy. I mean energy some of these really difficult issues and they're in their teens which is incredibly laudable um it, it, but they are going to need some help in navigating not just the political world um and social problems but their internal you know landscape uh, it's like yeah, what we have my, left them my it's a massive challenge my daughter-in-law is um, is um, doing work now with 
young people, a high school age mostly, and you know a little bit younger and a little bit older, with using creativity to grapple with their feelings and their feeling responses, their thoughts and feelings around the climate crisis. And they're oh, doing, wonderful. they're making videos. Hmm. And it's really being rewarding and exciting. And they have, you know, these young people have so much, so, so many feelings. And, um, and they're so welcoming of this opportunity. And the videos that they're making are really incredible. I mean, I think that they're more uh, convincing than than anything that I've seen um, on television or that comes through, uh, you know, kind of professionally made mm-hmm. online um, because they have such immediacy and they're so authentic and real. They they just they really knock me out. She's um, she's doing a PhD on this. She's just hmm. finishing it at UC Davis and um, wants to find ways to just keep doing more and more of this. But yes, the the young people need this so much. That's such exciting work. Um. It is really wonderful to hear. And the, the, just the simple power of an authentic voice. Um, and, uh, you know, as someone who polished up my testimony to Congress and all this, and, yes, I thought it was powerful at the time, but it was so produced, uh, much of what I did. Um, and I imagine that's necessary when yeah. you are dealing with Congress. To some, uh, yes, to some extent, but I think but yeah, is there a that's place? all you do. Yes, right. Is there a place? And it would be very interesting, wouldn't it, if um, if some of the people who were involved, who are involved uh, in doing this work day in and day out could have, and even some of the older people, you know, could have a place for their own feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, I think in retirement, um, I've had a lot of opportunity to reflect and and actually invite, you know, feelings that I, you know, had really pushed away because they were overwhelming and I had deadlines and, yes, it wasn't kind of encouraged. But I I agree it would be, uh, I think, important, especially especially to younger people coming into it that hope to stay with the challenges that we have left them. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think about all the young people in the Sunrise Movement and other movements who are working so hard now. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you have spoken about a resurgence in poetry in this country. Uh, maybe you can share about what you're seeing and why this resurgence may be happening and what it imports. 
Yes, this is quite amazing. You know, poetry is um, is alive and well. There are more <laughs> readers by far of poetry now than there were 20 years ago. Um, I'm uh, a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, and the number of people who uh, have subscribed, they send out a poem every day called Poem a Day, and the number of people who have subscribed to that has risen dramatically, even in the last five years, Hmm. and the number of readers is just skyrocketed. And I think that there are a few things that really um, are, are reasons why this has happened. And, uh, and oh, and I'll say that the, the, the main increase is with young people and uh, people of color. Mm. And so I think one thing that's happened is that there is a, uh, there are a huge number uh, increase of poets of color who are writing um, today, and I think that um, there's a lot more support for poets of color than there ever was, and also whenever a group comes into more power and um, more freedom, then poetry is right there. So we saw it in women's poetry, for example, in the early 70s especially, and all through the 70s, and we now are really seeing it with uh, an incredible um, increase in excellent poets of color writing. And the other thing, I think, is that in difficult times, people turn to poetry. And these are certainly the most difficult times that, um, I'm 73, so it's certainly the most difficult times that I've ever seen, um, both uh, nationally and uh, for the planet as a whole. So I think that that these are two really big factors. I also think that spoken word has been uh, a conduit uh, for young people to first encounter spoken word and then come into poetry on the page as well. Hmm. So I think that all of these things have contributed to it. And although, you know, poetry is certainly not popular in the way that, um, you know, music or film is, it, it, has, it is definitely much more important to more people than it has been in a long, long time in this country. Well, Ellen, this has been a delight and an honor, and I want to thank you. Um, This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I'm here today with Ellen Bass. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Louisa. I love talking to you. (laughs) Great. And I am so appreciative of uh, the work that you 
have done and that those who you've worked with have done for the Grizzlies. Oh, well, thank you. If you want to learn more about the Grizzly and what you can do to help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. And if you can, give us a review. 